power on. Greetings sapient being. Welcome aboard the Starship Alexandria. Prepare for the user podcast. Welcome to the User Podcast. You know, between running one of the most popular tech podcasts on the planet and exploring both the outer universe and the inner universe that exists within each of us, I don't often get to dive into one of my deepest passions, the ancient history of planet Earth. But a few years ago, 2018 to be exact, I happened to have a little extra time on my hands and I wrote a few pieces on what I consider to be, well, to put it lightly, misconceptions around certain aspects and mysteries of history. I ended up writing three pieces, each on a related but fairly different subject than the other. I then turned these into audio lectures and shared them exclusively with Sovereign Tech Podcast supporters. But since, as I often say, information likes to be free, it's time for these to be made available to the public for the very first time, presented here as supplemental material for the user podcast. The titles of these three pieces and the order they're presented in are 1. Snake Goddesses and the Serpent of Eden 2. The Pentateuch, Pan-Babylonism, and You 3. The Ankh with a Side of Fruit The theories presented here would be considered wild at best, the ravings of a madman at worst by mainstream archaeologists and anthropologists, and you'll likely have not heard anything like these anywhere else. But with the same courage of explorers of all times and all worlds, I present my findings, theories, and work to you, as is. Dr. Sovereign, Dr. Sovereign, please report to the command deck. Dr. Sovereign, please report to the command deck. Incoming transmission from Dr. Gold Blossom. Well, I have to get going. We had a little problem with an ice fissure near the base on Eros. Computer, inform command deck I'm on my way. Uh... Enjoy the lectures. Sovereign Insights, the audio edition.
Sovereign Insights, Snake Goddesses, and the Serpent of Eden. Woo! It is your very first Sovereign Insights post on Patreon that is only accessible to you dilettantes of the Triple Black Arts, those on the $5 reward level. You know, I, the man of tomorrow, am going to level with you. I wasn't sure what exactly these were going to look like, and in fact, they may not have any kind of standard look or content to them at all. The basic idea behind these Patreon-only posts is to give you access to my wilder ideas, as I call them, or perhaps even to half-formulated theories that I'm working on. Or maybe I'll just react to some archaeological find out there and I don't see my own research represented. And so many of you seem so damned interested in what's going through my head at any given moment that I decided to share these things with you. But admittedly, since these are either half-formulated or highly theoretical or speculative, I thought it would be something a little more befitting for those that are more invested in Sovereign Tech, that being you, the $5 and up Sovereign Tech patrons. And please understand, since much of Patreon is by my own design, a place where you, the listeners, have a lot of control over the content, I will take requests on what kind of stories or theories you'd like me to talk about. I can't guarantee that I can get to them all, or perhaps I have nothing to say on certain ones, but I'm totally open to your feedback and suggestions. So, what to talk about first so that I can start getting my footing with this? Well... Since first hints at a beginning, why don't we go with a theory about the beginning, or at least the beginning of humanity as claimed by some. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the tale of the wily silver-tongued serpent that we are apparently told is none other than Satan himself. Whoa, Nelly, <laughs> so hot in here. Let's pull that bus over to the side of pretentiousness turnpike, shall we? We're getting way ahead of ourselves. Let's not start in the story of Eden as told in the book of Genesis in the Bible. No, no, we don't say Hebrew Bible around here. It's the Bible. No shit, it's Hebrew. But we should start with the serpent slash snake. And let's take a gander at something that maybe should have actually been the first entry in Sovereign Insights, the ancient Minoan civilization. Why start with them? Because I think they're the most recent example of a missing part of human history. And because of that, I think they shed light on many aspects and stories of history. But we'll save the full discussion around the Minoans for another time. But they are still important now. For those that aren't aware of who the Minoans were, a brief recap. Flourishing from around 2700 to 1600 BCE, the Minoans are a bit of a mystery in themselves, and perhaps the best evidence for what this ancient island civilization that inhabited the island of Crete and other Aegean islands was, the Minoan script Linear A, has yet to be fully deciphered, leading to heavy speculation based upon what else we can find of them. Most theories go something like this. The Minoans were a matriarchal society dominated by women, highly sophisticated, lovers of luxury, ardent and skillful traders and merchants. They had no military to speak of, apparently because of that skill in trade. The women wore dresses that fully exposed their breasts, well known, but also very unique. And they seemed to have no real temples or really any sign of religion. I think you can see this is a genuinely unique civilization that we have no knowledge of any other like it before, nor has there been since. But to that last point about religion, they do have snake goddess statues. Initially found in 1903 at Knossos by Arthur Evans, these things look like something straight off of a Starbucks Frappuccino. Dressed in common Minoan women's garb, but holding a snake in each hand and with a looped knot of some kind between their breasts, they're definitely Minoan. But what do they represent? What do they mean? And what in the goddamned hell do they have to do with the serpent in the story of the Garden of Eden? Indulge me. 
Now, snake goddesses certainly aren't unique to Minoan culture, but this exact representation and the fact that they were only found in Minoan households and not in temples, like so many things Minoan, makes these little statues unique. While at first blush you could say they are some household god, I think that's far too simple an answer for a people that were not simple in the slightest. While in the West, whatever the fuck that means, people generally think of the use of the snake as a symbol representative of Lucifer or Satan, throughout much of the rest of the world, however, which is significantly larger than America, you may not realize, the snake is actually a symbol of the cycle of life. It is widely used as a symbol of rebirth due to the consistent shedding of their skin. The snake symbolizes the ancient version of becoming a new you, without L'Oreal Paris to sell it to you. And I think this is the first part of what it meant to the Minoans, the constant opportunity for rebirth in one's life, to start again. But how do I know it has to do with one's life and not just the rebirth of the world? Notice the second important symbol on the figurines, the knot. I'm going to talk about the knot in a minute because it's important, but the placement of the knot points at what this is trying to say. In ancient cultures, and Minoan culture perhaps being the most blatant in this due to the widely accepted constant exposure of women's breasts, breasts were considered the symbol of life itself and of youthfulness, the zest for life. This can even be found in the Bible in the book of Proverbs chapter 5 verse 19. Point being, this is widely accepted. So, for the snakes to be held wide, exposing the breasts, and for the knot to be between the breasts is key to understanding what these snake goddess figurines are about for the Minoans. Now, about that knot. What is commonly referred to as a sacral knot, this too gets attributed to being some kind of religious symbol. More on that later too. In fact, sacral knots are generally considered analogous to another religious symbol, the Egyptian Ankh the symbol of immortality. And that's the third part of what we're putting together here. Want to go one more? Remember that Minoan script, Linear A, that I mentioned that still has yet to be deciphered? Well, part of what has been deciphered, or thought deciphered, is the name Esasara. Throughout the text, Esasara, it's claimed, is referencing these very snake goddess figurines. And the argument goes that Esasara is actually the Minoan version of the goddess Astarte, who was an ancient goddess of fertility and sexuality, and was generally worshipped by orgiastic, they had orgies, cults. Astarte, however, is often identified as a later version of another ancient goddess, Ishtar. Ooh, Ishtar who regularly is depicted holding an Ankh, by the way. It seems like everything starts with Ishtar at some point, doesn't it? Sumerian civilization? Epic of Gilgamesh, anyone? Exactly. It really all does start with Ishtar. Everything we know of the start of human civilization points at her like Venus shining down on Earth and making a Star of David out of its shadow. Oh, wait, that's, uh, that's weird. Um, and that's another subject for another time, but you get my point. And, so my argument goes, these little snake goddess figurines are representative of none other than Ishtar herself. So what does that have to do with anything? I know, this is a crazy ride. Imagine what it's like for me to try and write this for you. Without writing an entire diatribe about Ishtar, suffice it to say there is the very real chance that either Ishtar and her contemporaries was a very real person, human by the way, that started a new beginning for humanity, or at least she is a symbol of a new beginning for humanity. Read Rebirth. Oh, and that whole Easter-Ishtar connection thing? 
and the snakes are representative of this rebirth that occurred and may continually reoccur. Not that the universe itself restarts like some kind of Mayan calendar nonsense. No, no. As I theorized, the use of putting the ankh slash sacral knot between the breasts was to highlight that the figurine is referencing life. Human life. But wait, wasn't Ishtar a goddess? Why isn't it just that the Minoans were worshipping her? Aha, there's the rub. Nowhere in Minoan civilization, as I stated, are there any temples or any kind of religious framework. To assume that these figurines are talking about a goddess would be to create an entire religion for a people that there is no evidence whatsoever that they had any kind of religion. And just because it's Ishtar, so what? That doesn't mean that they have to think of her as a goddess. Again, she just may be a historical symbol or a historical person that continued to get held up as a powerful story. You know, like how Marie Antoinette is representative of a lifestyle and events and not even as important as the actual person, etc. In fact, for Ishtar to be some kind of starting event for human civilization would suddenly make sense of all of the snake symbolism found in almost every culture around the ancient world, including that serpent in Eden. What about that guy, huh? Wait, how do you know it was a guy? It doesn't say it was a guy, and it doesn't identify itself as a guy. Wait, a talking snake? What the fuck? Yeah, here's what all of this comes down to. You have a million theories from the serpent just being a dick, an actual physical penis, not just some asshole, to some kind of metaphorical description of Lucifer, to whatever. But what if it were far more simple? What if the serpent in Eden is just a symbol of rebirth? A new beginning for humanity. A beginning that defied the order of things. The beginning of civilization itself. What if Adam and Eve themselves are just symbols? Just like Ishtar perhaps was or is. Once you take the literalness out of the creation myth of Genesis and compare it with other cultures, suddenly a talking snake or all of the people that magically appeared for Cain to go hang out with when there were only supposed to be four humans on the entire planet... Yeah, now suddenly we have a story that has a place in our history. A metaphor for the start or restart of human civilization, founded in the rebellious and beautiful act of eating the fruit of the knowledge of everything. What does good and evil really mean anyways? In a story that would eventually snake its way into every household throughout history, even in the peaceful homes of the Minoans. I'm not saying it's true, or that I have all the answers here, or anything like that, but it is something to think about, and there are a lot of finer points and other aspects to this to cover, but I need to leave some things to the imagination here so you come back for more, and more sovereign insights are to come. Hey wait, but what about the Ankh or Sacral Knot and immortality? Oh boy, well, that's another subject for future sovereign insights, but I assure you, it matters. And I promise we'll talk more about the Minoans soon, too, since I think in many ways they are the key to everything. Insights, the audio edition.
Sovereign Insights, The Pentateuch, Pan-Babylonism, and You. Woo, baby, it's time for another Sovereign Insights post for all of you dilettantes in the triple black arts on Patreon. This is where I discuss recent archaeological and historical finds and give my, as I'm told by others, unique take on them, or where I just have some fun with the mysteries of history. Also, I think Sovereign Insights can make a fine companion piece to the user podcast series, and to some degree, this month's Sovereign Insights post is going to do just that, as well as play off the original Sovereign Insights post from October 2018. And the other advantage is that these posts can serve as reference material for whatever I happen to bring up in them. In the very first episode of the user podcast, aptly titled In the Beginning, we talked about, well, the beginning of everything. In that episode, I discussed a few different theories on how our universe and Earth came to be, but posited that really only the book of Genesis even tried to describe an actual beginning to everything. I also mentioned how there are many problems with the book of Genesis within the context of its more common interpretations, even beyond the idea that I forwarded, which laid out how there are actually multiple creation stories within the book of Genesis, and not just one as is popularly believed. One of my examples of explanations as to why there may be multiple creation stories, one of them in Genesis chapter 1, the other in Genesis chapter 2, was a concept I mentioned called pan-Babylonism, and I think this concept has broad ramifications for many things that we'll discuss on future Sovereign Insights and on the user podcast. You see, if we're going to get to the bottom of this thing called life, as well as deconstruct the heart of what we know is human civilization and society to potentially escape from or solve the problems within them, we have to know the reality of its foundations. I don't think anyone would argue, for better or for worse, I'd argue largely for worse, that the Abrahamic religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Baha'i, are foundational to modern civilization. So to get to the heart of things, examining the core of these faiths is paramount. Otherwise, we're never going to understand the basis and nature of the world we live in. Okay, back to pan-Babylonism. Pan-Babylonism is an idea that was wildly popular in the early 20th century, particularly by intellectuals out of Germany. While it would have a few different interpretations within it, the basic gist of all of them is that Judaism, and thus every other Abrahamic religion, was actually based on either ancient Babylonian or some other Mesopotamian religious system that came before it. If Judaism didn't lift and reinterpret from a Mesopotamian faith whole cloth, at the very least they may have borrowed heavily from it, the theory suggests. As stated on the user podcast, this could explain why there are two creation stories in the book of Genesis, one which is Babylonian and one that is from something else, either Canaanite or some other tribal Semitic spirituality. Note, many scholars center on the large amount of shared concepts and beliefs between Zoroastrianism and Judaism slash Christianity, theorizing that one was based off of the other, with Zoroastrianism potentially being the older and the originator. While I'm not opposed to this idea, or that with the ancient kingdom of Israel being at a literal crossroads and major trade route with much of the civilized world, that Judaism could have borrowed from a multitude of other religions. One need only look at how many different faiths King Solomon was practicing at one point due to the literally hundreds of women he was courting and stooping during his reign and all of their different faiths to consider this possibility. But the roots and influential aspects of Zoroastrianism are things to discuss at another time. End note. Again, while initially a very popular idea in the early 20th century, pan-Babylonist thought would largely disappear from scholarly circles after being considered, key word there, discredited by astronomical and chronological arguments of Franz Xavier Kugler. 
A fact not to be ignored, F.X. Kugler, an Assyriologist, also happened to be a Catholic Jesuit priest. At this time, and through much of the 19th century, the Catholic Church was dealing with a real PR nightmare, that being the wildly popular at the time classic, though sadly forgotten, work by Alexander Hislop, The Two Babylons, whose subtitle, The Papal Worship Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife, pretty much tells you the story. Hislop's work claimed that the Catholic brand of Christianity, but not Christianity as a whole, was the rebirth or continuance of the ancient Babylonian religion of the worship of the founder of Babylon, Nimrod. It's a hell (coughs) of a read, whose ideas are still part of Protestantism today, and I recommend it to anyone, not to say that it's perfect. But even a cursory glance at the case being made by Hislop, you can see why a Jesuit priest would be quick to try and debunk a theory like pan-Babylonism, which suggests that the Abrahamic faiths are actually just extensions of Babylonian religion. But Brian, where the fuck are you going with all of this? Are you saying that the Bible is actually bullshit? No. Okay, well, some of it is. Maybe a lot of it is, at least as it's presently arranged. But that's not exactly the case I'm making here. Indulge me. Let's set the Wayback Machine for 622 BCE to the kingdom of Judah, where King Josiah was reigning now for his 18th year, since he took over at 8 years old after the death of his big daddy, King Ammon, again at 8 years old. At this point in history, the kingdom of Judah, while technically a client state of the Assyrian Empire, was actually functioning with little foreign control due to tensions between the Egyptians and Assyrians, and also a whiff of the rise of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This unsettling bit of Middle Eastern business left the people of Judah, Israelites, though separate from the northern kingdom of Israel, remember your history, to look inward and concentrate on trade and cleaning up their kingdom overall. And where do you start with cleaning up your kingdom? Well, maybe you clean up the most important building to you, as well as what you identify with as a people, the Temple of Solomon. Though the repairs to the great temple were actually ordered previous to King Josiah's reign, it was under King Josiah that a remarkable thing happens while the temple is being repaired. The Israelites find the Bible. Wait, what? You heard that right. In 622 BCE, a high priest of Israel named Hilkiah, a rare figure in biblical history since there are many extra-biblical sources confirming that he was an actual person and existed around the time that the Bible claims he did, is digging through the shambles of the Temple of Jerusalem, the Temple of Solomon, and he finds a doozy of a scroll, which he calls the Book of the Law of the Lord Given Through Moses. Don't believe me? Read from the Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 14-21, through 21, ESV version, itself. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakim the son of Shaphan, Abdin the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Aziah the king's servant, saying, Go! 
Inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord, to do according to all that is written in this book. Woo! <laughs> King Josiah was really shaken up by this. But why? Because not only did they find the book of the law of the Lord, the fact is that the Israelites had lost it. In 622 BCE, they didn't have the Bible. But keep listening, it gets worse. Not only did they not have this book, and the priests and King Josiah admit that the Israelites had been worshipping all wrong this whole time, or at least for hundreds of years, but it's not like they had found the entirety of what they would consider the Holy Scriptures. Hilkiah only found the book of Deuteronomy, only one book of the entire supposed works of Moses, which there should be at least five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the found Deuteronomy, what's commonly called the Pentateuch, which literally means five books in Greek. Now, let's be clear. If you're going to find any book of the Bible or Torah, Deuteronomy is a great book to find. Why? because it's the Cliff Notes version of much of the previous four books of the Pentateuch. The Ten Commandments are repeated in it, much of the law is there, hence the name Book of the Law of the Lord, and more, including quite a bit about Moses and the journey of the Israelites. But then that's the real problem, isn't it? It's just the Cliff Notes version, which suggests two things. One, that if Hilkiah and King Josiah realized that they were worshipping wrong since they didn't have the Book of Deuteronomy, that means they must not have had the previous four books. Otherwise, they could have just extrapolated the true faith laid out in Deuteronomy from those previous four books, and finding Deuteronomy wouldn't have been such a shock. Two, there is never such an equally harrowing and dramatic story told about finding the other four books of the Pentateuch. So where did the other four books of Moses that we can read today in the Bible come from? As you've probably guessed, I have some theories on this. First, though, a couple of other points to mention to you. One is that, as we were talking about the book of Genesis before, the central starting characters of the Pentateuch, Adam and Eve, are not at all mentioned in Deuteronomy, nor are the creation stories in any real way. This makes you wonder where the creation stories came from if they're not in the only book of Moses that the ancient Israelites found made no mention of it. The second point, if you believe Jesus was a real person, is that outside of the known actual history that the people of Israel would have known at the time of King Josiah, the near history of King David, Solomon, etc., the only scripture that Jesus himself ever quotes is from the book of Deuteronomy. It's almost as if it was the only holy book he knew. Almost. Regardless of other things that Jesus would mention in passing in his supposed life, the fact that to combat Satan he would only quote scripture from Deuteronomy is significant. Note. Another obvious question to ask here is that if the Israelites were worshipping God all wrong, or weren't even worshipping God at all, what the hell were they worshipping? What was their religion at the time? It's a great question, and there doesn't necessarily have to be one answer, but that's a whole other subject to get into in the future. And note. Alright, to the theories. While for a time the kingdom of Judah would prosper under King Josiah and a return to following the ways of YHWH, God, would go on for nearly 15 years after the discovery of the book of Deuteronomy, in 605 BCE, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would besiege Jerusalem and begin the approximately 40 years, a number not to be ignored, of the infamous 
Babylonian captivity, which would lead to most of the Israelites becoming enslaved or assimilated into the Babylonian Empire. While some Israelites slash Jews would become high-ranking officials in the Babylonian Empire, think Daniel, and others clearly escaped back to Egypt where they set up a temple very similar to the Temple of Solomon at Elephantine Isle, a story for another time and an important one, the fact is that the Hebrew people would never be the same after the Babylonian captivity. And I would argue, neither would their religion. When Cyrus the Great of Persia, a man that the Jews would call Messiah, ironically, another story for another time, let the Hebrew people in Babylon return to Jerusalem in 539 BCE, it didn't take long for them to start rebuilding what they could remember of their way of life, including getting to the business of building a second temple of Jerusalem. But I would posit to you, why stop there? If you're rebuilding your entire identity as a people, and to separate you from those evil Babylonians, and Torah goes on to say nothing less of them, same with the New Testament, you better start giving your people some new origin stories to believe in, and you better start finding ways to make your people feel special. So while you're rebuilding your temple and way of life, why don't you write a few extra books explaining where, when, why, and how of being a Jew? And you have this nifty book of Deuteronomy to run off of that Daniel would seem to have protected, so why not just extrapolate from that? The theory I'm suggesting to you is that everything before the book of Deuteronomy, such as the book of Genesis, is a much later creation, no pun intended, by the new priesthood of Judah coming out of the Babylonian captivity. Those books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, were never actually part of the original Hebrew scriptures at all. Deuteronomy is the only book of the Pentateuch that has any claim to historicity. Some scholars even go further as to suggest that the worship of YHWH that King Josiah would reinstate wasn't a reinstatement at all, but an entirely new religion created by Hilkiah in the priesthood of Josiah's day, basically saying that everything we have today from before the books of Samuel, perhaps, and maybe excluding the enigmatic book of Job, the earliest book of the Bible we have, wasn't written or compiled until the 7th century BCE, or perhaps even the 6th century BCE, after the Babylonian captivity. And all of that falls well under the theory of pan-Babylonism that we mentioned before. I'm open to the idea that the finding of Deuteronomy was a finding of a genuine historical text, and that Hilkiah actually did find it. I think that happened. But I'm left to conclude that the other early books of the Bible were constructs, at best reconstructions, which is still a huge problem, perhaps melding Babylonian myths and creation stories with what the Hebrews could extrapolate from Deuteronomy. A remix, as it were. Or it could be true that it's all Babylonian, and was just invented and written down later on. Still a remix. I'm not writing that off either. None of this is to suggest that there isn't at least something, or some truth to Torah, or what we often call the Bible, including what I hope you're beginning to see is the very specious Pentateuch, or that some of its texts aren't genuinely thousands of years old, or at least based on thousands of years old stories. But the idea that it is a cohesive narrative, a perfect history, holy words, and or some kind of guidebook for life in its present form, oh no baby, at this point, that seems practically impossible. So let's stop basing our worldview and world on it. Like King Josiah realized, we've been doing it all wrong.
Sovereign Insights, the audio edition. Sovereign Insights, the Ankh with a side of fruit. All right, I'm going to do something crazy here. I'm going to tell you exactly what a certain symbol means that pretty much every archaeologist, Egyptologist, and anthropologist will tell you they don't really know what it means, nor do they know the exact origin of it. Are you ready? Fuck, okay. Just to be somewhat modest, I guess I should say this is merely my theory on what it means, my own hat getting thrown into the ring. But, as I, the Golden Stallion, am wont to do, I think I'm right. So let's talk about the Ankh. Widely accepted as a symbol of eternal life or immortality, two very different concepts, mind you, this is a symbol that has as many variations in interpretation, beyond the general gist of the aforementioned concepts, as it does origin stories, and its relation to the Christian cross would seem fairly obvious, but the reality of the matter is, it's pretty much anyone's guess as to what the Ankh originally meant, and where it originated. Historically, it's considered an Egyptian symbol, and certainly there are thousands of hieroglyphs which use the symbol to bolster that point, but most historians recognize that while the Egyptians may have popularized it, the Ankh existed long before they used it. Modern and not-so-modern theories vary from it being representative of the sun, or vagina and penis, or the legendary E.A. Wallace Budge equating it with the Tjet, the Knot of Isis, a ceremonial girdle thought to represent female genitalia and symbolizing fertility, or to merely the loop of a sandal that wraps around one's ankle. Note. While I think the sandal or boot may be one of the single most important inventions ever by ancient humans, it's a tough sell to say that it would be the basis for religious symbolism. It's important to keep in mind that most religious symbols have parallel symbols in other cultures, and as best as I can find, no other ancient culture has ever used anything relative to footwear symbolism in their religious frameworks. Of course, that said, it is the symbol of modern-day California, but nothing about that culture makes any sense at all. And note. In my opinion, it's remarkable just how much interpretation and mystery surrounds such a simple symbol, and I'm not the only one with that opinion. As scholar Adele Nozadar says of the Ankh, the volume of meaning that can be squeezed from such a simple symbol is awe-inspiring. The Ankh represents the male and female genitalia, the sun coming over the horizon, and the union of heaven and earth. This association with the sun means that the Ankh is traditionally drawn in gold, the color of the sun, and never in silver, which relates to the moon. Putting aside the complexities of these separate elements, though, what does the Ankh look like? Its resemblance to a key gives a clue to another meaning of this magical symbol. The Egyptians believed that the afterlife was as meaningful as the present one, and the Ankh provided the key to the gates of death and what lay beyond. But again, regardless of the theory, the only thing that can be claimed today for certain is that the Ankh symbol is older than any of the known Egyptian kingdoms, and no one knows when exactly it started being used, or where it started being used. For fuck's sake, we can't even find a good cave drawing of it, and the Ankh is a simple enough symbol for our cave-dwelling ancestors to have drawn. 
However, I do think there is a group of people that knew exactly what the Ankh was and where it originated, the ancient Egyptians themselves. So we have to make a couple of points clear here at the onset to understand where I'm going with this. These points might seem somewhat unrelated, but they're not, I assure. Here goes. First, understand that the priesthood in ancient Egypt was as powerful, if not more powerful, than any given pharaoh. Part of what gave them this power was their synergistic relationship with the people, and their seeming ability to perform miracles or other wonders for the people, including bringing a good harvest in some things seemingly far more fantastical, which the book of Exodus interestingly readily claims, since Moses wasn't the only one who could turn rods into snakes, etc. Pharaoh's priests could pull that off too, remember? Egyptian priests had this power over the people because they had secrets, or what would at the time be called magic. And even in ancient Egypt, as it was in most ancient cultures, the epitome of magic was sex magic. Everything from masturbation to a priest or priestess stooping a partner for two weeks straight, not kidding, to wild orgies. This was the name of the magic game. Ever wonder why most priestly classes, including Judeo-Christian ones and religions, put a moratorium on masturbation, constant sex with your lover, or orgies? That's because, in the spiritual framework they perceive, they know that sex magic is where real power comes from. And if the people are doing all that wild sexy stuff, the priesthood's stranglehold on that power diminishes. But that's their secret, and the best you can do as a plebe is purchase time with temple prostitutes, a very popular and possibly the very source of the world's oldest profession. Note. I'm not saying sex magic actually works, or that magic in the supernatural sense is in any way real. Not that I'm necessarily unsupportive of such efforts. And note. Sure, the pharaoh controlled the army, but the priesthood controlled the people with their perceived wonders and blessings, and it created an incessant stalemate between the two powers. The priests couldn't push too far against the pharaoh for fear of the wrath of the pharaoh unleashing his army upon them, and the pharaoh couldn't push too far against the priesthood for fear that the people he ruled over would turn against him through influence of the priests. Ironically, this may be what allowed for so much stability, by and large, throughout ancient Egypt's history. Good old-fashioned checks and balances, right Americans? Now, the second point that you have to understand is about the priestly cults of Egypt, which the most popular would become the cult of Isis, a goddess that would become synonymous with the Ankh symbol, constantly holding it in hieroglyphs. I'm not going to give you a full retelling of the story of Isis here, another story for another time, but essentially Isis is just another goddess in a long line of goddesses before and after Egypt that we can call the Resurrectrix. The Resurrectrix goes by many names throughout history, and her ability to, hence the name, resurrect pretty much tells the same story, and is definitely related to myths about one Jesus Christ. Inanna of Sumer, Ishtar of the Assyrians, oh, there's Ishtar again, and Isis in Egypt, or in all of them, roughly translated as the Queen of Heaven, and many more names going into the future, the Resurrectrix just keeps popping her head into history at the most inconvenient times, but she's always there, perhaps even later on with names like Mary or Miriam, but I can't imagine who I'm referencing with those. The point I'm trying to drive home here is that Isis is not just a popular Egyptian goddess. She's a popular goddess with everybody and every culture, which probably has to do with her being the goddess of sex. I mean, I'd worship a goddess of sex. Well, now we're getting a little off the tracks. But Isis was the goddess of sex first and foremost, ironically also the goddess of war, and that has bearing and is important, but that's for a later time. And it's a good bet that most symbolism attributed to her has to do with getting busy. 
Of interest, another symbol of Isis is the Tree of Life, something that would supposedly later become a major concept within Judaism's Kabbalah. Though let's be honest, Judaism is Kabbalah and Kabbalah is Judaism. They're not really separate concepts, despite what some other rabbi would tell you. Also of interest, her other symbols would include eventual association with the planet Venus and our moon, as well as the eight-pointed star, which looks very much like a compass symbol on a map and is better known as the Star of Ishtar, but is also known as the Soul of Isis. And even, wait for it, the six-pointed star, you know, that thing commonly called the Star of David. Note. Isn't that interesting that Isis slash Ishtar slash Inanna carries the exact same symbols of the major Abrahamic faiths? The Ankh slash cross equals Christianity. Six-pointed star equals Judaism. The moon equals Islam. Even Baha'i rocks, okay, well, it's a nine-pointed star, but pretty close. Hmm. And note. Okay, we're getting overloaded. Let me reset things a little bit. Regardless of which name she would use, Inanna, Ishtar, Isis, Starte, and so on, the Resurrectrix in every culture she appears in ends up becoming the only god in the pantheon that truly seems to matter to everyone, which is why the Ankh as a symbol or as something worn is so attributable to Egypt, because the Egyptians were wearing it and splattering it everywhere. Note. From 1353 to 1336 BCE, ancient Egypt went through what's called the Amarna period. The pharaoh at the time, Akhenaten, a very strange and genuinely unique character, imposed a dramatic change in Egypt's polytheistic religion into one where the sun disk Aten was worshipped over all other gods, effectively embracing monotheism. The only symbols allowed in this new religion? The sun disk of Aten and the Ankh. Akhenaten wouldn't even allow the equally wildly popular Eye of Horus to appear anywhere in his temples. None of it. Nothing of the old religion. I think the Ankh's continued veneration under Akhenaten stands as proof to the very primal and ancient nature of the Ankh. We might as well have called him Akhenaten. And note. And keep in mind that Egypt didn't just disappear after the Greeks and then later the Romans came into power. Oh no, Egypt was a client state for those empires for as long as they existed. What's so important about that? What's important about that is Isis was worshipped all the way up until at least the 6th century CE. Just barely over a thousand years ago, the worship of the Resurrectrix was still wildly popular, and probably more so than Christianity until Christianity would become the only legally practicable religion in town, which probably led to it consuming Isis's day of worship, the day of the sun or Sunday, along with Isis's symbol, the Ankh slash cross, and even her whole story about the Resurrectrix. Here's looking at you, Jesus, and even good old Jesus's mom, Mary, or as the Catholics call her, the Mediatrix, or Queen of Heaven. Whoa. Note. Absolutely, yes, the Ankh is the basis for the Christian cross. It's just another borrowed bit of business by that religion, be it by Catholicism or some other denomination. In fact, there is a groundswell of Christians today trying to get to a purer Christianity or a primal Christianity that have completely removed any symbolism from their faith, from Christmas trees to crosses. They won't touch any of them for fear of their pagan roots. I'll admit, I can respect that. And note. Fuck, we got overloaded again. I'll try again. So, if the Ankh is associated with Isis, and Isis is the goddess of sex, then the Ankh is probably some kind of sexual symbolism passed down to the goddess in whatever form or name she takes. Simple enough. I know what you're asking. Well then, why all the hullabaloo, Brian? Didn't we already establish that it signifies sex at the beginning of this whole thing? Yes, we did. But that's not the whole of it. This is where historians get tripped up. 
While it's true that according to those same historians, we don't know the origin of the Ankh, we do, however, have at least a story about the origin of Isis, or more particularly, her earlier incarnation of Inanna. In the Sumerian hymn Inanna and Utu, we find out much of how Inanna became the goddess of sex we've come to know and love. In this thousands of years old story, we find out that earlier in Inanna's life, she actually knew nothing about sex. So she begs her brother Utu to take her to Kerr, the Sumerian underworld, so that she may taste the fruit of a tree that grows there, which will reveal to her all the secrets of sex. Utu complies, and in Kerr, Inanna takes the fruit and probably now knows how to give one hell of a blowjob, among other things. It's a great and sexy story, and smacks of the Garden of Eden. That's probably because it's the original story that the Genesis account was based on, as I've discussed on the user podcast and previous Sovereign Insights. But the difference here between the Sumerian hymn and the Genesis account is that it isn't a tree with the knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree with the knowledge of sex. Why does that matter? Because nearly every commentator you can find on the Genesis account will say that Eve eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil gave humanity the knowledge of God, or something along those lines. And I would argue that Inanna eating the fruit that gave her the knowledge of sex also gave her, effectively, the knowledge of God, or more accurately, the power of the gods. But wait, Brian, isn't Inanna slash Isis already a goddess? Uh, well, yeah, now she is. Sort of. Remember, as I theorized in previous Sovereign Insights, Inanna slash Ishtar slash Isis, particularly in relation to the Minoans, was probably a real person. You just wait until I tell you about what I call the Ishtarian Revolution sometime. You're going to L-O-V-E love it. But that's besides the point. The point is the Ankh. The Ankh is absolutely representative of a penis going into a vagina. Straight up. No pun intended. The loop is the pussy, and the rod is the dick on that thing. Not uninteresting that the Ankh also looks like the symbol for Venus. It is sex, but it's not just sex. It's sex power. It's sex magic. And sex magic is, as Inanna slash Isis slash Ishtar finds out in the real story of eating the forbidden fruit from the tree, the real power of the gods. Just as every priesthood and authoritarian throughout history seems to realize which is probably why the narrative of sex is only for procreation gets pushed on us so hard. The Ankh is an ancient symbol that reminded our ancestors of what they believed to be the true power of the gods and the universe, the power of healing, the power of fertility, the power of manifestation, the power of sex. Note, I can't be the only one that has realized all of this, but one of the first things you learn when studying history in any serious way beyond watching some cable channel is that historians and archaeologists come to the table with biases. And Western, whatever the fuck that means, civilization's bias towards sex is to keep it in the bedroom. It's no wonder that many historians wouldn't want to admit to all this. And note. Again, I'm not saying sex magic is real, but many ancient and some modern cults and religions believe so in one form or another. Honest texts on the matter, though they are few, describe how the orgasm for the man and woman puts all involved in touch with the divine, along with many other empowering mystical and not-so-mystical claims. Personally, if I were to believe in the divine, I agree that the only time I've ever experienced it is during sex, and not just the orgasm. I'm pretty sure I'd experience it just causing an orgasm in another person, or in the overall pleasure alone. 
It's awfully peculiar that the remixes and retellings of our most ancient stories, events, and myths, like the retelling of the hymn Inanna and Utu into the story of Adam and Eve, and the bastardization of ancient symbols like the Ankh, which later gets turned into the cross of Christ, all seem to want to hide this ultimate power of sex believed by ancient civilizations. Note. There's the possibility that sex magic isn't really magic at all, but just something that we don't exactly understand yet. But as Carl Sagan would brilliantly say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I assure you, for science, I will continue to search for this extraordinary evidence from every position possible. Er, uh, oh boy. End note. Understand, I had to skip a lot and gloss over things to keep this from becoming, frankly, an entire book. We didn't even get to discuss what the Ankh, and thus sex, has to do with resurrection and immortality. But we will get to them in the future. The hardest part for me in doing these sovereign insights in any of my work is deciding what to tell you and what not to tell you. These subjects are not easy, and they take years of study to put together. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask them. And while you're at it, why don't you throw an ankh on around your neck and maybe give some of that sex magic the college try for old time's sake, all right? Trust me, I'm pretty sure you can't do it wrong. See you next time on the User Podcast. User podcast was made possible by the Knight Foundation, Interplanetary Expeditions, the Earth Cargo Service, Sovereign Tech First University, and with contributions from users like you. Thank you.